Well, let's turn again in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, we won't take the time to read the whole chapter in this second session today. We'll begin uh, this afternoon at verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 6. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now we've been pointing out that this book is about challenge and encouragement, uh, living in the last days, uh, fully possessing the truth and faithfully passing on the truth uh, from one generation to the next. And it is the last words of Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, to his young fellow servant, Timothy. And Timothy, we have uh, suggested, is in one way a representative of all of us as well. For as Paul was writing to Timothy, he was writing to us who would live in this era of church history. And he's been challenging Timothy to rise to the challenge of being faithful amidst unfaithfulness. We pointed out at the earlier message that he begins by reminding Timothy of the preparation of God in his life, that Timothy's calling uh, really arose out of a work that God had already done in his life, going back to his childhood days before Timothy was even aware of any of this, placing him in that a lovely Christian home with a godly grandmother and a godly mother who influenced his life. And we reminded ourselves how, how God prepares us, whether we're raised in a Christian home or, or not in a Christian home, uh, that even before we come to know the Lord, God uh, prepares his servants and uh, there's been preparation in our lives as well. And so the first thing Paul reminds Timothy of in challenging him and encouraging him is the work that God already did in his life, God's uh, preparation. The second thing he reminds him of is the verses that we have read this afternoon in verses 6 and 7, the gift of God, uh, that not only had God been preparing Timothy, he had gifted Timothy. Uh, And so uh, Paul reminds him, he says, that you stir up. Uh, the gift of God which was in thee by the putting on of my hands. And it reminds us of uh, the other teaching we have in the New Testament concerning spiritual gifts, that God's design of the church is that he supernaturally enables every member of the church, every member of the body to function in a very special way that contributes overall to the health and vitality of the body. This tells us that every one of us are a necessary part of the local church, that no one believer possesses all the gifts that are necessary. Now, there are several chapters in the New Testament that speak about gifts. We have, for example, in uh, the book of of Romans, uh, we find teaching on gifts in uh, chapter 12. And then we also have teaching on gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and and 13 and 14, really. Uh, And then we have some teaching on gifts on Ephesians chapter 4. And we also have teaching on gift in 1 Peter chapter 4. 
And all of these have a, a little different emphasis in this matter of spiritual gifts. Uh, we notice, for example, in, in uh, Romans chapter 12 that uh, the emphasis there is on the duty to actually exercise the gift, uh, to, as the Nike people used to say, just do it. Uh, and that was, that was the emphasis Paul has there. He says, do it. He says, if you're a teacher, you should teach. If you're an evangelist, you should evangelize. If you're a servant, you should serve. If you're a giver, you should give, and, and so on and so forth. Now, none of the passages on gifts ever give a complete list of all gifts, but they are typical. They're characteristic of gifts. And so if you don't feel, feel that you see your particular gift listed there, don't despair. It's the general principle that's taught in these passages. So the first lesson from Romans 12 we learn is we're to actually do it. We're actually do, do it. And then in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the emphasis there is on the diversity of gift and, and how we are dependent uh, one on another. Uh, we are dependent one on another, that, that, that no one member of the body can operate in independence and can say, I don't really need the other members of the body. Uh, that would be a very dangerous place to be spiritually if we allowed ourselves to think like that. But in subtle ways, you know, our own human pride can creep into spiritual things. And while we might not say it that way, we might operate that way. We might look down on others' gifts and, and think that they're not as good as our gift and, and that our gift is more important than other gifts. That's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, that God has ordered the church, designed the church in such a way that it is diverse. And that's where Paul uses the example of a human body, how all the different parts of our body are necessary. And, and one part of the body can't say of another part of the body, I don't have any need of you. But then the other mistake that people uh, sometimes make in connection with the gifts, uh, and the, the one case, uh, it's, it's a question of saying, well, I'm not sure I really need any other gifts. Uh, but the other extreme is to say, well, I don't know if I really have a gift, that I'm not really needed. And both are a mistake. And none of us here should ever think that, that, that we are all gifted in some way to perform a vital service here in the local church. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, we all have a role to play. That is God's design. That's how God has designed the church. Uh, we, we might divide gifts, uh, broadly speaking, into what we might say the, the speaking gifts and the, and the serving gifts. Of course, those who speak are serving as well, but, but you get the idea. The, the, those that, that speak publicly, that's one kind of gift. But then there are those that serve privately, those who speak publicly, and those who serve privately, those who serve behind the scenes. And uh, we often see the public gift because it's, it's public, uh, and we see it. And those of us engaged in, in a public ministry uh, sometimes think we probably appreciate the, 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 the behind-the-scenes serving gifts more than, more than anybody because we realize how dependent we are on those, that, that, that every member of the body... Remember how uh, in the epistle, one of John's epistles, he speaks about um, those who, who help those who minister the gospel and, and, and those who show the gift of hospitality to those who, who minister the gospel and it says they share the reward of the preacher, of the gospel preacher, those who provide the hospitality. 
Now, very few people often know who does provide the hospitality, and it's done behind the scenes, and it's a labor of love in taking someone into your home and caring for them while, while they might be visiting. But that's just a, a sort of a microcosm. It's one example of the many ways in which the behind-the-scenes gifts are as important as the gifts that we see uh, publicly. And so uh, Corinthians talks about the diversity uh, of gifts. So we have in Romans chapter 12 the duty to exercise the gift. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we have the diversity of gift. And, and then we get to 1 uh, uh, Peter chapter 4, and we have what we could call the divine enablement necessary to do the gifts. Uh, where, where Peter writes, let, 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 uh, if any man speak, let him do it with the ability that God gives. And, and we need divine enablement in the exercise of our gift. A gift is not uh, merely a natural talent or ability that, that an unbeliever could possess. No, it's a special divine enablement for service. And it requires the divine power to exercise it. We don't exercise it on our own ability, or our own strength. We do it with divine enablement, and that's what we want. We want the divine power working through us in the exercise uh, of our gifts. And so here Paul is reminding Timothy of the gift uh, that God gave him. It is a divine enablement of God for his servant. I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which was in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, it's uh, not an expression that we would use a great deal today, this idea of the putting on of my hands or the laying on of hands. We find it again in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul is reminded there and the connection is the, uh, the, the putting on of the gifts of the presbytery or the elder, putting on of the hands uh, of the presbytery or the elders. And uh, commentators have different ideas about this. One explanation is that, that, that the apostles were involved in the, in the actual transmission of gifts, something that, that was uh, only in the apostolic era. Uh, there may be something to that, but it is di difficult to square with uh, 1 Timothy 4 and 14, where it's not an apostle was involved, it was merely the elders. And so a better explanation seems to be is this idea of the, the putting on of hands is the, is the recognition of gift by others. And this is often how we come into a, an understanding of our gifts because that's always a question. Well, what really is my gift? Uh, I, can, I can see how gifts are necessary. I can see how God's designed the church. I can see the diversity, the interdependence. I can see all that. But when it gets down to the, the practical, how do I really even know what my gift is? And uh, we, we find really that gift is often seen more clearly by others than it's seen by us. It's others who often recognize our gift more clearly. And so we need to listen what others are, are involving us in. I think it, it, it's probably fair to say this, it would be impossible to discover your gift if you absent yourself from local church fellowship. I would say it would be impossible to discover your gift uh, by sitting home and watching YouTube videos of great preachers. That, that, that I think, would be, would be, I would be safe in saying that it would be impossible. We have to be found together because that's where gift is exercised, in the fellowship. 
And so the first step in discovering our gift would be determine that, that I am going to be at all of the meetings of the assembly that I can possibly be at. I'm going to be with God's people. I'm going to meet with them. I'm going to be there week in and week out. I'm going to be there when it, the sun is shining and the birds are singing, and I'm going to be there when the snow is blowing. Well, you don't know anything about that, but you know <laughs> there are parts of the world where that happens. My mother went to be with the Lord last November. She was 93, and uh, she lived in an apartment uh, on her own. Uh, she didn't drive a car, though, and, uh, but she would be at every meeting. In fact, she was at all the meetings on a Sunday and Monday. She went to be with the Lord, sitting in a chair in her own apartment. And she would go to every meeting. Where we live in Canada, we actually get fairly mild weather through the wintertime. We're in a, a little spot, a temperate spot there, and it's one of the warmest parts of Canada. And we get some snow, but not a whole lot like other parts get. But two winters ago, we had an unusually cold, cold winter. And... Uh, it was, uh, it was, even by our standards, uh, a little hard to take. And so we would often call my mother up needing a ride for a meeting. Mom, you're going to a meeting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She didn't miss a meeting the whole winter. We would go and pick her up at her apartment. It was one of those high-rise buildings. She'd come down the elevator and come and wait. You know, the wind would be whipping. It would be cold weather. You come into the meeting gap, and there she'd come out, you know, with her cane. She'd walk along like this. We thought she was going to fall over and trip on the sidewalk. Never missed a meeting. And, you know, we need that spirit among us to be always together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much more as we see the day approaching. And we live in a world today which is, which is uh, pressuring us uh, by the, 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 the rapid pace of life uh, to prevent us from gathering together. And the culture is becoming more isolated. And we, you hear these expressions like cocooning and, and, and this kind of thing. Uh, people are self-sufficient in their own home environment. They have all kinds of, of access to media and entertainment and information. And, you know, we talk about social media, and yet it's anything but social. Uh, we talk about getting friends, and I don't know how, how you actually have friends on a computer. And, and we're, we're, we're isolating ourselves. The church was designed to get together, and we need to get together. Be faithful. Be a faithful attender. That's how we're going to discover our gift. Because if we can't be faithful at the attendance of meetings, it's very unlikely we're going to be faithful at any kind of service uh, for the Lord. And it's there where people observe us, and they can begin to see what our gift might be. It's also there where we see uh, opportunities for service, and there's something in us that, that attracts us to areas of service that we're gifted in. We sort of are naturally drawn to that. But none of that can take place if we're just going to sit at home. Gift is often uh, recognized by others. Now, he says to Timothy in verse 6 here, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift. And some translations put that to, to rekindle the gift. 
and I'm sure you've heard this before or read this, it really is the idea of, of bringing the, the coals together in a fire, uh, the embers together. You know what that's like at a campfire. You want to sort of put everything together. If everything gets separated, whatever you're burning, whether it be wood or coal or whatever, if you separate everything, in fact, that's how you put a fire out when it comes time to put it out, don't you? You want to sort of separate everything, uh, pour some water on it, and you hope the fire is going to go out. But to, but, to, but to stoke the fire, to rekindle the fire, is to draw things together. And it suggests to it, in Paul's exhortation to Timothy, is that if we don't pay attention to our gift, if we don't use our gift, if we're not ready, willing, and able to exercise our gift, our, our gift is possibly going to die out. So that, that's pretty solemn. In other words, this isn't something I can go and just pick off the shelf whenever I feel like it. I have to work at it. And so he says, I put thee in remembrance. He's reminding Timothy of something here. He's, he's pushing Timothy a little bit here. He, he's wanting him to move forward, that thou stir up the gift which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. And he says, verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, or to be timid, uh, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And it's led many commentators to suggest that, that Timothy may have had a natural disposition to be sort of a, a timid kind of a person, a person who was reticent uh, to step forward. And, and so Paul is saying to Timothy that when your gift is at work, when God is really in it, he doesn't give you that spirit of being, of, of being reticent, of being timid, of setting back, but rather of power and of love and of a sound mind or a healthy mind. So that when a gift is at work, and, and God really using you and using your gift, there is power, uh, there is love, and there is soundness of mind or health of mind. That when God is doing his work in our lives, when the gift is really at work, there is truly the divine enablement. And we know that. We, we often see as we exercise gift that, that there's something beyond our own natural ability and talent. Uh, it's something that's outside of ourselves. It's not just something we sort of are born with. Sometimes we say, well, he's a natural-born speaker. Or he's natural-born at this or she's... Not. Well, yeah, we do have natural abilities. That's true. Uh, but spiritual gifts are something different. And it is a divine enablement. And so Timothy needed to be encouraged to, by faith, launch out, to have the courage to step into the place that God had called him to. Now, happily, we find that Timothy did have a good track record, that he was a faithful man, uh, that he was willing to do that. And we see him laboring with Paul. Uh, we see, as we mentioned last night, the reference in the Philippian epistle, uh, that he certainly was a man who rose to the occasion. But it didn't mean he didn't need the encouragement, too. Uh, because it's true that as we serve the Lord, it, it, we don't sort of arrive at a place where we've got it all together. But, but we can serve the Lord and we can do things for the Lord and we can exercise gift for the Lord, but we can get discouraged. And, and we, can, we, can, we can have times where we might second guess ourselves and say, well, I don't know if I'm really cut out for this. I mean, there's been many a preacher that, that you might have listened to and thought, boy, that was fantastic preaching. That was, oh, I really was learned a lot. It was helpful. You know, that preacher may go home that night saying, you know, I don't know if I'm really a preacher. And, and, and any kind of gift. 
people that do, do children's work, people that do uh, oversight work, people that do camp work, people that serve behind the scenes. They say, oh, I don't know if I'm really cut out with this. I mean, we're looking back with our sort of our mouth hanging open saying, I don't know how they do that. And so we do need encouragement, don't we? We need encouragement for one another. And so this really is what Paul is, is saying to Timothy here. We need to get out and exercise our gift. It manifests itself in power and love and of a sound mind. But it does require uh, the stirring up and the rekindling. And so the second encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy is that not only has he been prepared of God, but he's been gifted by God. And that's true of all of us as well. The next one we find in verse 8 is uh, uh, what, we are, what I've called the, the power of God. He mentions it at the end of verse 8, and, and then he connects that in verses 9 to 11 with the purpose of God. Now, I hope this won't confuse you too much, but I'm going to pass over these this afternoon, and I think we'll revisit those tomorrow morning because there's an excellent application in the gospel in this section. And uh, I'd like to maybe hold that for tomorrow morning uh, at the Family Bible Hour, and we'll, uh, we'll revisit verses 8 through 11 tomorrow morning, and the power of God and the purpose of God. And we'll pass over to, to verse 12, uh, which is the fifth in my, uh, my numbering here, uh, the promise of God, the promise of God, uh, the promise of God Right, number five, the promise of God in verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded, that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Notice four things out of this verse. Number one, Paul's pain. Paul's pain. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Paul, as he wrote, he in many ways veils the suffering that he endured. You really have to dig a little bit and think a little bit about his circumstances to get the full picture. In other words, Paul does not go on and on about his adverse circumstances. You know, if we get a little bit of pain, we make sure everybody hears about it, don't, don't, uh, don't we? Uh, once or twice, and, and we often don't let it go. But Paul is very discreet about it. He almost minimizes it. I mean, when he was writing this letter, he's sitting in a Roman prison. And, and, it, and this time, it was, it was certain that he was going to be executed. And, and it, 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 but, it, but it's only referred to in an almost oblique kind of a way. Like, it, it's not really direct. But that, that was his situation. His pain, for which cause I also suffer these things. Now, he has just spoken about the wonderful power of God in the gospel and in the resurrection. And what he's really saying is the cause, the reason I'm suffering these things is because we're engaged in something that is much bigger than ourselves, that we're part of God's great purpose. Now, as I mentioned, we'll explore that a little more tomorrow morning. But that was the cause for which he was suffering these things. Nevertheless, he was a man who suffered. Uh, we find at the end of the epistle, he talks about this, about those who had forsaken him and abandoned him, uh, that all they in Asia have returned away from me. Uh, imagine, imagine pouring your whole life out for a particular people. Uh, imagine just working here, say right here in this, this assembly here. You spent your whole life working here. At the end of it all, they said, well, 
you know, I don't know if you're really of any use here anymore. And that's really what happened to Paul. He poured his whole life out for the people of Asia. Perhaps the most extensive part of his ministry was concentrated in Asia. And in fact, it has produced a, a, gold, it has produced a gold mine for the church. If you think about it, how much we get in our Bibles as a result of Paul's ministry in Asia. We have the, the epistle to the Ephesians, for example, uh, would have been born out of that. We have the, uh, these pastoral epistles in connection with ministry at Ephesus. Uh, we, we find uh, the, uh, the, the church at Ephesus, uh, the, the, the Apostle John writes to the church at Ephesus, the first one to be uh, mentioned there in the messages to the churches. Uh, the, the, the church, the, minute, the, the uh, result of the work of God in Ephesus was really a, a landmark work in the spread of the gospel in the first century. And Paul poured his life, his heart out there for two years. He labored with his own hands when he was there. He worked day and night for the people of Ephesus and the people of Asia. And he says, all day in Asia. Here he is in prison at the end of his days, and all day in Asia are turned away from me. Demas, he's forsaken me, having loved this present world. What would that have been like? It's hard to know what pain was greater. Was it the pain of the prison? Or was it the pain of those who had abandoned him? Uh, it wouldn't have been easy, would it? And yet Paul was undaunted. Paul never gave up. We find a man who sits with a, with a clear vision of things as they really are. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Uh, here was a man who had his eyes on glory. You see, it's easy to think about glory sitting here in the Claremont Bible Chapel especially after a meal like that, if you're if for those of us that are still awake. It's easy to think about glory, isn't it? Oh, that will be glory for me. Can you think about glory sitting in a Roman prison, knowing that the day of execution is coming? Is that, is that what happens? Is that the thanks you get for serving the Lord? Your friends abandon you, your, your, your supporters abandon you, and you die alone at a Roman executioner's sword? Is that, is that, that the thanks you get? Paul was undaunted. Sometimes our complaints over our discouragements are so petty in comparison to this standard, isn't it? And we sometimes need to give ourselves a good talking to and not fall into the trap of self-pity and feeling sorry for ourselves over every little upset that comes along. That wasn't the way of Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. His eye was firmly on the reality of the glory, his, his pain. His perseverance, for which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. That is, I am not disappointed. I'm not giving up, he says. I'm not quitting. I am not ashamed of this. Even though I find myself in prison, even though my friends have abandoned me, even though the support, the human support is, is virtually gone, with the exception of a few, he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. I know this is real. I know this is right. Even though I am suffering this pain, I am not ashamed. His perseverance, it leads us to his persuasion. Notice what he says in the next uh, section. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. 
and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I am persuaded, he says. Notice uh, the focus of his persuasion. It's on a person. I know whom I have believed. He's not telling us, I know what I've believed. He's going to get to that in a moment or two. But here he's saying, it's, I know whom I have believed. My faith is resting on a living person on whom I have believed. I know that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It, it should encourage us to, rem, to remind ourselves that the Lord is personally interested in our own life and service and our own circumstances. This wasn't just for Paul, because he later tells us at the end of the chapters we've already quoted, he says, I know the, uh, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. That the Lord deals with all of us that way. That he will not abandon us under any circumstances. I know he's able. I'm persuaded. I'm resting in him. And then finally Paul's prospect was that day. That which I have committed unto him against that day. He knows there is a day coming. Now he doesn't tell us what he means by that. But... It would seem to me he's probably uh, thinking here about the, the day of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, he could be speaking about the rapture of the church. He could be speaking about the day when the Lord comes again to establish his kingdom. But, but it seems to me he's probably speaking about the day of compensation, that day of the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, he knows that God is going to make up to, for him. He is the God of, of compensation. He compensates, and in a future day, he is going to compensate every loss, every sacrifice, everything that was given up. He says, I'm persuaded. Even though the circumstances around me are bleak and dark and without human hope, my eye is on him. And there's coming a day when he is going to make it all up for us, up to us. That should encourage us. And it was intended to encourage Timothy as well. The promise of God brought to bear uh, upon our lives. And then sixthly, we notice he moves in verse 13 to the word of God. The word of God. Uh, verse uh, 13, it says, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. As we pointed out in verse 12, the emphasis there is on uh, whom we believe. And in verse 13, it is what we believe. It is what we believe. Uh, hold fast the form of sound words. And and that uh, might be explained this way. The form of sound words is a, a pattern of sound words, a delineation of sound words. Uh, it is, uh, uh, one, I think one translation says, have a mental outline of sound words. Uh, the idea is here is to be able to hold in our mind uh, what we believe, the doctrine we believe. 
And, and we, we make several attempts at this. We have these various statements of faith that attempt to, to summarize the doctrine that we hold to be true. Uh, and these are all valuable things to help fix in our minds our doctrine. Uh, we pointed out the other, or uh, last night, I believe it was, that the, the idea of soundness in these pastoral epistles is the idea of, of health-giving or wholesome words. And uh, so, so he's, he's saying to Timothy that to have it clear in your mind uh, the words, the word of God. And in these epistles, 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter, and 2 Peter, which is Peter's last letter, and John's epistles, which are his last writings, apart from the book of Revelation, all of them are written by those respective apostles near the end of their lives, and in all of them they commend to us the importance of the word of God. Uh, here in these epistles sound words. Uh, in Peter's epistle, we have some of the second epistle there. We have some of the clearest teaching about the word of God, how holy men of God spoke as they were moved uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Uh, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, the, these, uh, and John's epistle, how he discusses truth at length, uh, the difference between truth and error, that which is true and that which is false, these are all commending to the church in the present era the vital importance of the Word of God, of teaching the Word of God. And, and the, the, the church will not survive unless we are committed to the teaching of the Word of God. It is absolutely of vital importance that we learn to be readers of our Bible, for those that are gifted to teach the Word of God, they need to give themselves diligently to the study of the Word of God and to explain the Word of God with clarity. The, the, the Word of God is absolutely uh, vital, and we are to hold this truth. Notice what he says at the end of the verse. He says, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And those components are to accompany our understanding of the Word of God. It's possible to approach the Word of God purely on an academic and intellectual level. Now, it is true there have been some great minds that have been applied to the Word of God, and we're grateful to those as they have opened the Word of God up to us. But it is more than uh, just the academic or the intellectual exercise. It requires faith and it requires love. We are to hold the truth in faith and in love. And when the truth is spoken in love, when the truth is held and understood in love, when the truth is practiced in love, that is a powerful force against the inroads of error. And it's an amazing thing to me, as you look back over church history and think how we sit here today, 2,000 years removed from the events of the days of the apostles, and when the word of God was brought to a conclusion, and we sit here today and are talking about and are teaching and are attempting to practice substantially the same doctrine that was taught in the first century. Now, how is it 
that that doctrine has been preserved so faithfully for 2,000 years. When you think of all of the forces that were arrayed against the church, when you think of the post-apostolic era, when you think of the days of persecution, when you think of the days of corruption, when you think of, of what we often refer to as the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, when you think of the institutional professing church that really had abandoned the fundamentals of the gospel, when you think of the handful of, of believers that clung to the faith, the faith and faithfulness, little groups here and there scattered, disorganized, when you think of the powers of great governments that, would inst that attempted to install and harness a state church and tried to uh, really run the church from political powers, all of the things that are arrayed against the church. When you think of the, the, the movement of people through history, through the changes in languages, in cultures, in understanding, in politics. And here we sit today in the year 2017, and we can say that we have substantially the same truth that was taught in the first century. There was no organization controlling it. Uh, there was no, no body that was making sure it was kept apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and faithful men and women generation after generation, sometimes merely a remnant clinging to the truth, but faithful to the word of God. And here we sit today with the word of God preserved for us. This is the truth held in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, the word of God, Hold it in truth, hold it in faith, and hold it in love. Number seven, the Spirit of God. Verse 14, that good thing which is committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Keep or guard that good thing which was committed unto thee. Uh, back in, in verse 12, we were... Uh, reminded of that which Paul had committed unto him. And in verse 14, he reminds us of what the Holy Spirit has committed unto us. That good thing which was committed unto thee. The Spirit of God. Uh, he's likely speaking here about the work of the Spirit in the, the indwelling of the Spirit in our lives. The, 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 the sealing of the Spirit on our conversion, as he writes to the Ephesians. The fact that when we come to know Christ as our Savior, it is the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell in every believer, uh, presented as the earnest or the down payment, the evidence that God intends to fully complete the transaction that was started at our salvation that it's God's purpose to fully redeem us in the sense of bringing us into the fullness of the, of the glories of heaven that are ours. Of course, we are fully redeemed now, that we now are possessors of that eternal life, but we haven't yet fully realized it all. And so God's purpose was, to, to, was for the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And so he says, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwelleth in us. And the Spirit of God is at work in the life of every believer. When we turn to the Ephesian epistle there, we have an exhortation that says this. It says, uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the commentators always tell us that, that that's a continuous action, to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I was noticing something not long ago at, in, in that uh, passage, in that little uh, preposition, with. Uh, the experts tell us that that word with, that preposition, is, is used uh, to, to describe uh, an, an instrument. That is, uh, it's not so much the content, but it's the instrument. And, and so we might be able to read that verse this way. Instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it, 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 it could be translated this way, be filled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit that is doing the act of filling. The Spirit of God already indwells every believer, but his continual work towards us is to fill us. Now, what, was he, what does he fill us with? Well, sometimes it's thought he fills it with himself, and some believe that that's what that teaches. But there's another way of looking at that verse. It's not the Holy Spirit so much filling us with himself. He already indwells us. But if we read the other references to being filled in the book of Ephesians, we find it's to be filled with Christ. It's to be filled with the word of God. That the Spirit's ministry towards us is to fill us with Christ and to fill us with the word of God. Be filled by the Spirit. Let the Spirit fill you. He will fill you with Christ and he will fill you with the word of God. Now I wonder, do we give the Spirit an opportunity to do that? you think the Spirit could fill you with the Word of God, or He could fill you with Christ, if all your time was spent, oh, I don't know, watching Netflix, on Facebook, on YouTube, watching television, you think the Spirit, would that, would that be good material the Spirit of God could use to, to fill you? That'd be tough, wouldn't it? For, even for the Holy Spirit, that would be tough to do. I wonder if we, if we gave ourselves maybe to a little more reading of the Bible, a little more time spent in prayer. I wonder, would that be better ground? Would that give the Spirit a chance to fill us if our minds were being occupied with the spiritual realities? There's a great deal of talk today about looking for revival, and uh, we want to see revival. And you know, I think there's a very, really simple formula that, that, that I would say, I, I think we could say with a fair degree of certainty, would, would probably guarantee revival, would ignite revival. Think about this for a moment. What if we took about 25% of our time that's currently being spent on social media? Not 50% of our time, not 100% of our time. We can go as low as 25% of our time. And we spent that time in the study of the word and prayer. I, I, I have an idea that that alone might just ignite revival that neither the world or the church would probably be able to handle.
that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwelleth in us, the Spirit of God. And then finally, the last encouragement he gives in verses 15 to 18 is the people of God. The people of God. And he gives some bad examples, and he gives a good example. He's preparing Timothy. He gives a bad example in verse 15. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. He's telling Timothy, look, Timothy, you can't quit because you run into some Christians that treat you badly. That's no excuse. You can't go and whimper in the corner and give up because you were treated badly. Now, it's pretty tough to get treated badly. And we can't minimize it. It hurts. But it happens. And we have to be, we have to be big boys and girls about this. And we have to accept that. Paul did it. Of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. You remember in the Philippian epistle, Paul speaks there. Again, another prison epistle that he wrote. And he speaks there about being in prison. He says that, that, that some were preaching Christ out of envy and strife, supposing to add afflictions to my bonds. Imagine that. Here's Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel, and people, it emboldened some out of envy and strife, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. What does Paul say? Boy, they're going to get theirs on a day coming. <laughs> Stay away from those guys. What does he say? Whether in pretense or in truth, I rejoice that Christ is preached. Well, he was going to get the better of it, wasn't he? They think they're adding trouble. They think they're adding affliction to my... They're doing it out of strife and uh, uh, pretense. <laughs> Little do they know they're getting the gospel out. And so he was quite content. Now, now he didn't say, go and join them. He, he didn't say, let's support them. He didn't say that. He's not endorsing false teachers by any means. It wasn't that they were teaching a false doctrine. They were teaching the true doctrine. It was the motive was the problem. But he got some rough treatment. And that's how he dealt with it. And here in his, in his last days, he's facing it. But there's no sense of bitterness about him. There's no sense of hostility about him. I rejoice that Christ is preached. So he's telling Timothy, look, there's going to be some bad examples. You're going to find some, some tough times, even with fellow Christians. But then he gives some good examples. And he, and he reminds of, of, of Onesephorus. Uh, or as one brother called, us, called it, one is for us. Uh, the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesephorus. Notice what it says. For he oft refreshed me. It wasn't just a one-off. This was his characteristic. He oft refreshed me. And was not ashamed of my, uh, my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. This must have been a courageous man to identify so persistently and so willingly with Paul the Apostle. See, the Romans were very concerned about Christianity, not because of the content of what it taught, but they worried about any group uh, that might offer some kind of rival allegiance to the power of Rome. 
And so they, they tried to snuff it out. And, and one of the things they would do, of course, is go after the leaders, the major, the, the major proponents of the teaching, but they would also be watching those who gathered around him. And so when Onesiphorus comes to Rome, he seeks Paul out. Going to visit him in prison wasn't like us visiting today, where we can go and visit people in prison. They're visiting ours, and you go in and identify yourself and, and this kind of thing. It wasn't that kind of a situation. They would have been watching very closely. Who, who are Paul's friends? Who does he associate with? Are they a threat? Should we be watching them? Should we arrest them? Should we imprison them as well? Are they a problem? You see, the easiest course of action would be just to avoid Paul completely and just stay out of harm's way. But not Onesiphorus. He oft refreshed me. He, he, he sought me out very diligently. In other words, he, he didn't just go to Rome and, 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 and knock on the door and say, is Paul here? No, Paul's not here. Oh, okay, well, I tried, you know. You know, my wife always says, I'm a horrible person to go and visit somebody in the hospital. You know, when I go and visit somebody in the hospital, I hope they're asleep, so, you know, because then I say, oh, I don't want to wake them up. I better go, you know, I'll leave a little note and leave. She says, they feel worse after I've been there. So I'm not, it's, it's not my gift, you know, it's not my gift. If you're sick and you're in the hospital, I'll do you a favor and won't visit you, you know. And, uh, but you know you ever go to a situation you don't really want to go to it and you're kind of hoping the person's not going to be home or, you know, whatever. And you sort of feel good that you made the effort, but you didn't really have to follow through with it, you know. But not Onesiphorus. Oh, no. He sought me out very diligently. He, 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 was, he was ministering to Paul when it wasn't easy to minister to Paul. And happily, for the most part, I would have to say among God's people, that's the kind of people they are. That fellowship with God's people is really the best. Yes, you're going to have some difficulties. Yes, there's going to be some hurts. But happily, those are the exceptions. That the main thing, the, the, for the most part, the people of God are wonderful. And we want to make our fellowship strong with them. And so the people of God are a tremendous encouragement. So encouragements for living in the last days. The preparation of God in our lives. The gift of God that he gives us the spiritual gift, the power and purpose of God. We'll look at that tomorrow morning. The promise of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. May we, like Timothy, uh, be encouraged to press on to fully possess and faithfully pass on the truth of God to our generation.